Is your business two steps ahead or always one behind? If the latter, chances are you lack data and insights to confirm your instincts. Here's the deal. Leaders are trapped in a world where data and insights are still a luxury rather than a commodity. While you might have strong intuitions about your business, my guess is you're hampered by legacy institutions and capabilities that provide only surface-level data and insights that do very little to validate your assumptions. Join me on a journey with some of the world's most notable minds who will share with you their secrets in capturing and making data-driven decisions that power their business. I'm Maury Blackman, and this is Great Minds Think Data. Welcome to today's episode of Great Minds Think Data. As the war in Ukraine enters its eighth month, there's significant uncertainty about the outcome. While Western intelligence sniffed out Putin's intent to invade, they significantly underestimated the Ukrainian will to resist and warfighting capabilities. From the outset of the conflict, Premise has been polling Ukrainian citizens to understand their perceptions about the war, morale, and confidence that Ukraine will ultimately prevail. My guest today is John Rendon, one of the world's thought leaders in the field of international and military affairs. John began his career in Democratic Party politics with George McGovern's 1972 presidential campaign. He later served as executive director and political director of the Democratic National Committee and managed President Carter's 1980 Democratic Convention in New York. John is considered to be the world's leading pioneer in the use of strategic communications as an element of national power and one of the first thought leaders to harness the power of emerging technologies in support of real-time information management. He has served as an executive communication consultant to the White House, U.S. Department of Defense, the national security community, and the leadership of Fortune 500 companies globally. In today's episode, we will tap John's knowledge to break down the war in Ukraine, its impact on the European community, and the growing nexus between Russia and China. We aim to drill down on the local population's will to resist, their desired outcomes, and Putin's resolve to continue forward with his special operation. Finally, we will turn our focus domestically and discuss the upcoming midterm elections and theoretical matchups for the 2024 presidential election that include how Liz Cheney's entrance into the race would increase the likelihood of another Trump presidency. Welcome, John. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, let's just get right to it. You know, one of the things that I think we, we got right was when I say we, I mean the, the U.S. government, we got right is that we understood that the Russians were going to invade Ukraine. But one of the things that I feel like we got wrong was we didn't understand the impact. We didn't understand Ukrainian resolve. We didn't understand how well prepared they were for this fight. Um, break that down a little for us. So I think, um, again, my view, not, not anyone else's. One, I think the administration initially stumbled on the issue publicly, uh, got its feet very quickly and was totally brilliant every moment thereafter. And most significantly declassifying intelligence and putting plans and, and intentions out in the open source environment took away from Putin his ability to build a narrative and sustain a narrative. So that was the first thing that I think. And you then, say intentions, what do you mean? So what, Moscow, what Putin was planning to do in Ukraine was disclosed by the United States in an open source environment before Putin could set the conditions for it. And we should remember today while we're having this conversation, we're probably seven months into a 48 hour operation. And I'm not sure that we got the Ukrainian resolve wrong. We may have underestimated a tad, but there has been a lot of training that's gone on between uh, the United States government, the United States military, and the Ukrainians, and, and they're good fighters. I mean, they, you know, they had deployed internationally before. What I think we really missed was we bought Moscow's line about how good their military was, and it wasn't as good. And one of the challenges now for people that are in the broader orbit of Moscow is they're trying to figure out what to do with the horse they bought does this horse belong on a racetrack or in a glue factory? And more and more of those countries are leaning towards, you know, glue. Right, right. Well, I felt like the world kind of got it wrong. There's, you know, Russia has this mystique to them about how, how amazing and strong their military is. And it broke down a little bit. Why? 
So I, I, I think one of the lessons that will be observed, because not many lessons observed are learned, although they use the characterization right. lessons learned, is the corrosive effect corruption has in authoritarian states. So their military very hollow, uh, supply lines fragmented, no logistical support. And that's because many of the money that went into that went into bank accounts, you know, in Switzerland, you know, or, or some other place. But there's a huge strategic effect that has nothing to do with Ukraine, but has to do with plans and intentions halfway around the world in Beijing. Because of the way the administration released the information about Putin's intent, Putin has to believe that we're in his room. We're either in his room through technical means or in his room in human means or carbon life forms. And looking at that means that Chi thinks that if we're in Putin's room, we're in his room. And that probably bought Taiwan two to five years. And that was an unintended strategic consequence of boxing Putin in. Well, one of the things that we see through our polling is that Ukrainian resolve has stayed consistent. And the other thing that's fascinating to me is that they believed they were going to win almost from day one. Um, it's ticked up slightly over time, um, particularly with the most latest counteroffensive that's gone on. But they actually believe they're going to win. And I think that is, from a strategic standpoint, it's huge. Unpack that for us a little bit. Yeah, so it wasn't just the will of the government. And the president's done a really good job, so this is not a ding at him. And it wasn't just their military. This was a whole-of-nation approach to an aggressor that invaded their land. And when the dynamic shift from state-on-state to a whole-of-nation approach, everybody is an adversary. And I remember conversations two or three months ago talking about what it's like to face that and believe then, as I do now, that Putin can take territory in Ukraine, but he can't hold the territory he takes. So some young conscript that's 19 years old steps out of an armored personnel carrier to have a cigarette, and an 83-year-old woman's going to kill him with a sniper rifle. Right. You know, and so w- when you're facing that, how do you do order of battle? It's not just the forces on the ground. It's every single thing around you. So what are, you know, let's, let's just pretend you're advising Putin. What do you tell him? Whatever he wants to hear, because if he doesn't hear it, I'm dead. <laughs> right, that's right. Well, let's, let's, let's assume that you're a long way away from each other, and he calls you up. He says, I'm in a bind here. What do I do? Well, so truth to power is, is complicated in this situation because Putin's not going to stop. This is 1937 for Europe. It's 1937 for the rest of the world. Where do you draw the line? Who draws the line and who finishes the line? And that is still out. Advice to Putin would be live to fight another day. He won't like to hear that. He's going to keep pressing. He's going to try to get the coalition fragmented, you know, through a very cold winter in Europe. And then he's going to try to get to the 24 election in the United States in hopes that he can get a president that has less resolve than Biden has. I think Biden's determined not to reward bad behavior, and he should be applauded for that. Absolutely. 100 percent. So how... How do you see this thing ending then? Well, this whole of nation piece becomes essential because for the United States, it's not a whole of nation approach, possibly whole of government, but fragmentation in the legislative branch. In Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, it's a whole of nation approach. They're solidifying their defenses because they believe they're next. That does not come down to the rest of Europe entirely. Uh, the Czechs, pretty much the same thing. Hungarians, no. They're probably more closely aligned with Putin. And I think the pressure has to hold. And then at some point, something's going to happen inside Russia. The risk is if Putin, who is a malignant narcissist, you know, and, and most politicians are narcissists to begin with, just a degree on the scale of when they look in the mirror, do they see themselves or do they see somebody else they think they are? Well, that's what being in power for... Yeah. You know, 20 years does to you. And so he's a malignant narcissist, which means that when he doesn't get his way, he destroys the game. And what does destroying the game mean for Putin with respect to Ukraine? If I can't have it, nobody can have it. And the conclusion of that sentence is the potential use 
of nuclear weapons at a tactical level or, you know, an explosion at a nuclear reactor. And those are threats that, that I'm convinced everybody is talking about. At the highest level. Yeah. In many countries. I mean, the, the radioactive cloud out of a nuclear reactor disaster, um, I'm pretty sure if it hasn't been shared with everybody in Europe, it's going to be. Do you see any way that Russia backs out, the reset button gets punched, and the world goes back to the way it was pre-invasion? No, not in the short term. Do you see any way that the, the nations in the world, the Western democracies primarily, would ever welcome Putin back to the table? No. And I'm sure you would say they shouldn't. They shouldn't now. You know, and I think even later they shouldn't. If Putin's not going to stop, then that means even if there's a deal, he'll take the deal because he'll get something in it, and then he'll begin someplace else. So, you know, we've got to try to put ourselves inside Putin, which is a very frightening experience. But um, he did Estonia and nothing happened. Did Georgia and nothing happened. Did Crimea and got Crimea. Did the Sea of Azov and nothing happened. He looks at everything else and says, why not? So somebody's got to draw the line. And, and I think Biden's hold, not only drew the line, is holding the line. And if the Ukrainians can find some way to push into Crimea and take Crimea back, you've got an entirely different game. But Putin, again, can take territory but not hold territory. So he's going to continue to try to take it. He has more he can do. The question is, when does he do that? But I don't see him going to the table. I don't see Ukraine going to the table. So is, is there a strategic out for either side? I think the strategic out is actually in Beijing. If Beijing backs off this temporary relationship and they decide the horse belongs in a glue factory, I don't think they would mind seeing, you know, they, they could change the equation overnight. Just by not supporting his ambitions. Correct. By not being a trading partner by not buying a buyer of the Russian energy, they can essentially shut them down. Yep. And what incentive do they have to do that? So right now, my view of Beijing versus Washington is the China card flipped. You know, we used to play the China card against Moscow historically, and now China's playing the Russian card against us, and, Beijing, and, and Moscow is playing the China card against us. So we have to break that, those dynamics. And how can we do that? Um, so, I mean, Beijing is, is an interesting uh, conundrum because it's a growing country. What we haven't talked about um, is Russia's in decline anyway. And the question is, you know, when does it hit bottom and what does bottom look like? I've been convinced for a while that, that Beijing is not afraid of the United States. It's not afraid of Japan, Korea, Russia, or India. It's a, the boys in Beijing are afraid of the, the Chinese people. And to the extent that the United States opens up, maintains, increases contact with the people of China, then you can get a change in policy in Beijing. That's a fascinating point of view, John. How do we, essentially we're exporting our culture into, into China. And so we're talking to the young people, we're getting them to fall in love with Western culture, and that could potentially have an impact on Chinese leadership. How does China block that? Well, it's trying to do it with the Great Firewall, right? But you know enough about technology because you're one of the leaders of Silicon Valley. As soon as they do something to the Great Firewall, you know, 10,000 people found a way around it in an hour. So it's an illusion. Uh, and people outside the country are talking to people inside the country. And so they know what's going on. Russia's been more successful. Putin's been more successful in blocking information going in to Russia than Beijing has blocked information going into China. I want to go back to this topic about our intelligence services and how we understand what's happening in the world. Back when George Bush was president and we went into Iraq. Which Bush? <laughs> Thank you. Because we went into Iraq both times. That, that, that good, good point. Well, I'm, t I'm talking about the 2000 version, not the 1990s version. So Bush goes in with the claim that we're going to be greeted as liberators. 
And he wasn't alone in making that argument. I mean, that was essentially what the intelligence services that he was talking to were telling him. Obviously, we got it wrong. Why? So I'm going to push back a little bit on that. And I'm going to push back this way, that both in Afghanistan and in Iraq, we were liberators for at least two years in Iraq, maybe a little bit longer, because I saw the polling data. And we also saw the shift in polling data. In Afghanistan, it was a little bit longer than two or three years, you know, my guess, five to seven. But when a liberating force stays too long, it becomes an occupation force. And the United States military, most Western militaries, are not trained to be occupying forces. They need entirely different tactics, techniques, and procedures, as you know, the system calls TTPs. And when that happened... I even remember doing briefings for Afghanistan where units were in rotation, right? So the 82nd would be, 82nd Airborne would be their 101st would hand off to them. They would hand off back again. And it, it became obvious it was more important to rotate the force than accomplish the mission because we knew how to rotate a force. But since the mission kept changing all over, it was really hard to accomplish them. We probably could have left Afghanistan right after bin Laden had been killed. And we could have left in an orderly process rather than a chaotic one. And in Iraq, we drove them into elections, which probably solidified the polarization in the country between Shia and Sunni. We disarmed a military and degraded them. And yet they really didn't give up their arms. And probably a number of them reappeared as ISIS later. And every time, you know, Military units would move into an area, you know, they would fight sometimes. Sometimes they would just melt into the neighborhood in which they were, look like normal people, and then come back out again. Forces of occupation don't have great histories of well, success. I totally would agree with you on that. I think armies, particularly our armies, Western-style democracy armies, we're good at breaking things, but we're not fixing them. You know, I don't know when you... When you go into a geography, whether it's Iraq or Yemen or Syria or Afghanistan, from your standpoint, you go in, you fix a problem, then how do you keep that problem from coming up again? I mean, one of the things that we hear today about Afghanistan is that people are very worried that now that we're out, that the Taliban's going to rise up and we're going to have another terrorist attack here in the U.S. Yeah, so we'll stay on Afghanistan for a second. My first visit to Afghanistan was 2002, early in 2002. And the city was, in, Kabul was a normal city. Now, it, you know, it's just concrete bunkers, concrete bunkers, concrete bunkers. And you can't say that we were winning. You can't say we were succeeding. But the population now is dramatically different than it was then. And the number of people under the age of 25 is also dramatically different. And the only thing they knew was the freedom they had. Taliban have to be very careful in modulation. If they restrict access and behavior too significantly, nobody's going to have to start an insurgency. It's there already. And an insurgency there pins them down from doing anything here. I don't think the Taliban were ever interested in doing something here. It was al-Qaeda operating with Taliban protection that was interested in doing Correct. something here. Correct, 100%. So you gave Biden high marks on his resolve in Ukraine. How about the exit from Afghanistan? So I wouldn't give him high marks for that. I agree with the decision to leave, not the way the decision was implemented. So I don't know. And I wasn't in any of the conversations. So this is the armchair approach, which drives anybody who's in the policy community absolutely bonkers, right? Because I didn't see any of the intelligence, wasn't in any of the conversations. But... We should never lose sight of the fact that it was a deal Trump made to get out. And then in the Biden administration, they moved the deal from the spring to August. And in the course of that conversation, I would hope that someone with a great deal of experience on the ground in Afghanistan would have said, Mr. President, I agree with your decision to leave. But instead of leaving in August, if you're going to move from May, I think it was, or April, whatever it was, to August, you should consider moving to December because then winter becomes an ally of ours. Nothing moves in the winter. So this notion that the Taliban could roll down 
enabled in part probably by Moscow and by Beijing. I mean, Beijing's interest in getting us out is so they can wrap their arms around all sorts of extraction industries, including rare earths. Moscow's interest in getting us out is that we would take a loss since they had a loss. And a black eye. Yeah, exactly. So not happy with the way, and a lot of people were left behind. Alternative approaches to get people out are still important. And I'll probably pause there just because people are still coming out. Back to Putin. Do you think that there's any legitimacy to chaotic exit that we had in Afghanistan to his belief that we would just let him roll into Ukraine and not provide any rhetoric, not provide a fight, not provide arms, not provide services to the Ukrainians? I understand the structure of the argument. I think what's probably more in the equation is what happened in Estonia, Georgia, Crimea, Sea of Azov. In that sequence over that period of time, that would have an effect. And and maybe the chaotic departure, you know, I can see one drawing a conclusion that we don't have the will. One of the things that we find in our polling with the Ukrainian citizens is that they believe today, they believe at the beginning of the war, that they could win. Whereas, you know, we talked about this a little bit. Most people in, you know, Western intelligence agencies, though, you know, all these think tanks felt like that they would only last a couple of weeks. What do you see? I mean, this is a whole of nation approach and they're going to fight until they have their land back and occupiers have left. And whether that is six weeks, six months or six years, they have resolve. I don't see that changing. Did Putin underestimate their resolve? Oh, clearly. And he overestimated his capability. I mean, one of the challenges, you know, with Iraq was Saddam believed people that were talking to him that he was actually doing things he wasn't doing. Correct. <laughs> that, was, that was the irony of the entire thing. Well, that's truth to power in an authoritarian state. Right. In an authoritarian state, you want to make sure that when you leave the room, you're using your legs and not being carried. Fair enough. One last question with, with the situation in Ukraine. You touched on, you know, kind of the zero-sum game that appears that Putin's playing. And you seem to be somewhat concerned about nuclear war. Do you think that's a plausible ending here, where that he either fires a nuke, sets off a strategic nuke? I mean, what would that look like in Europe? Oh, it'd be horrific in Europe. It'd be horrific anywhere. But I don't see it as a nuclear war. I see it the threat of a nuclear detonation. I'm not sure what the retaliatory proportionate response would be, but I've got to believe that there are command and control aspects inside the Russian military that would know setting off a nuke is a really bad idea. And maybe that serves as a catalyst to get an unscheduled change in governance. Do you see that as a possibility? I don't see a possibility of the Russian military doing. I do see a possibility of the oligarchs doing it. Great. Let's take a quick break. And we'll be right back. We're back with Great Minds Think Data. Let's shift gears a little bit, John, and and talk about local politics. We've got an election, a midterm election coming up here in the next few weeks. How do you see that unfolding? So we're almost, uh, we're past the two month, inside the two month mark, right? So, So probably seven weeks away. I think it's too early to tell what's going to happen because everything is in flux. Every single thing's in flux. Unpack that for us. So historically, you know, the ruling party, which in this case is the White House, loses seats in the midterm. That's normal. If they lose seats in the Senate, they lose the Senate, right? Just because it's a 50-50 tie. And the majority is so narrow in the House, it's conceivable that they would lose the House. But things have begun to change. And part of that change that's going on now is the success that the Biden administration has had in dealing with the energy crisis, which is not a Biden crisis. It's a Putin crisis. And people have tried to obscure that fact, but he's the one, Putin's the one that set that on the course. But up in Maine, gas prices have come down. And even, you know, here in the greater Washington area, gas prices have come down. And as that begins to happen, people begin to breathe a little bit better and they feel like, you know, the administration it knows what it's doing and is not lurching from crisis to crisis. 
Well, the counter to that, John, is going to be that, you know, there was a inflation report that just came out this week that showed we're still we're still red hot. So how do you how do you frame that against the energy crisis that we have? That's you know, the counter to what you were saying is a lot of people argue from the beginning of the administration, he went to war against the energy companies. Putin has certainly exacerbated the problem, but that would be that would be their argument to what you just said. How do you how do you resolve that? So, I mean, part of what's transpiring, mean, we talked about Putin earlier, but part of what's transpiring in the a number of the countries that are energy producers that historically had been inside the sphere of influence of the Soviet Union, they're moving west now. I mean, Putin's failure on the battlefield is leading them to believe they have nobody to talk to but the West. And they may actually be the ones coming to the rescue of Europe. If they come to the rescue of Europe, that's going to pro- provide more availability here. And there, there are countries, you know, for example, Colombia, that have increased their production now. That's all coming here. So I think we're going to continue to see that come down. Um, and inflation is going to be hard. And, you know, Putin is hoping that we don't have the, you know, political fortitude to make it through, you know, inflationary months. What do you think is driving inflation? Greed. I am astounded at the number of countries that are trying to make up for what they lost during the pandemic. Countries and, and companies? Companies, rather, companies, not countries. Yes. Right, correct. Okay. And so what does the administration do to fight that? It's probably got to be more of moral suasion. I mean, the administration did a really good job, or at least as of this morning, with the threat of a rail strike. You know, and to the credit of the... That's a win. You know, credit of the Secretary of Labor, you know, and the president pointing out the Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh, former mayor of Boston. He understands these negotiations. Biden understands these negotiations. And they were able to get a big win, at least so far. It hasn't fragmented. And I can see the administration beginning to do that systematically with different sectors in the economy. And once that begins to be felt on the street, then this whole political dynamic begins to shift. I think it's going to be hard, though, for for them to really impact people's thinking between now and the in the midterms. So it's a battle of narratives. So the Republican uh, the Republicans have done a really good job of defining Democrats as left wing communist socialists or socialist communists off the edge too extreme in the left. However, the actions of a set of Republicans that Liz Cheney called the Putin wing of the Republican Party and votes against NATO, hesitation on Ukraine, has created a dynamic of, well, maybe these people aren't that crazy, but these people are too extreme to be trusted. And when, if this narrative of too extreme to be trusted prevails in six weeks or seven weeks over the constant rhetoric that Democrats are uh, liberal, communist, whatever. In the battle of that narrative, this could result in the Senate and the House staying Democratic. Well, certainly when Biden went before the nation and framed the Republicans, particularly the ones that support Trump, as fascists, that seemed to be his intent to kind of say, listen, these people are very radical. We're reasonable. Work with us. Too extreme to govern. Authoritarians are too extreme to govern. And if that's the battle of the narrative, then some Senate seats move Democratic that were Republican. So which which of the Senate seats in the battleground states? Give me one where you think the Republicans have the best shot at flipping it and Let's do the same thing on the Republican side. Which ones do the Democrats have the best shot at flipping? So probably one of the toughest seats for Democrats to hold on would be in Georgia because it requires presidential turnout levels in a non-presidential year. So to the extent that people have been out working at the grassroots, getting people registered, right, and then turning them out, if that all works at a field level, then there's a chance to retain the seat. Now, also, you know, the Republican candidate there, not exactly coming together as a reasonable Republican. And there may be an argument there that reasonable Republicans 
you know, Herschel Walker being too extreme to govern, where they would either vote for Warnock or not vote for the Republican. So that's the mechanics. But that's one seat I, I would look at. The other seat I would watch very closely is uh, New Hampshire. Hassan versus Bulldog. But the same thing, too extreme to govern and see where that goes. On the Democratic side, I think one of the pickups, and I hear this from Republicans, so I've got to believe there's something to it, which is uh, Johnson and Wisconsin. You know, again, too extreme to govern. Not one of us. You know, what happened to him? Well, the Georgia, I look at Georgia from a very practical standpoint that you have two African Americans. Warnock's got to win 100% of the African American vote to win. And there's going to be at least, I just think there's going to be a lot of males between, you know, 50 and 65 who look at Herschel Walker and he's a hero. Yeah. He's a hero to them. And, you know, he won the Heisman Trophy twice. He's a football star. That's going to get him some of the African-American vote. And I think it's going to be enough to basically take away. Warnock's just not going to be able to win. It looks like it's close. We're going to do some of our own polling there, but I'm I'm going to predict it's going to be a four to five point win on Walker's side. I don't know a lot about the New Hampshire race. I, I think that that's just starting to come together. Unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah. So the interesting dynamic is the governor, Sununu, is who they tried, who the Republican, institutional Republicans in Washington, tried to recruit to run against Maggie Hassan, uh, who's the Democrat, and he chose not to do it. And she's been strong all along, but that state is a marginal state in a presidential election. It's not a solid blue state. It's not a solid red state. It can go either way. The same way the state of Maine could go either way. And so Bolduc, who is a retired Army, I think one-star, two-star uh, special operations running for that seat, now has a different base to pull from. You know, so he can get veterans because he served. And so that changes the math unless he's defined as too extreme to govern. He was out in the primary process talking about that Biden didn't win the election, that Trump really won it. So he, he set the conditions to be positioned that way. And then the Republicans that lost in that primary, the real question is whether they endorse him or don't endorse anybody. Well, well, so we're going to watch that. That's going to play out. I mean, most of New England does its primaries in September. So we're going to have to watch that 30 days from now. Mid-October. Yeah, that's a fascinating race. We'll keep a close eye on that one. And by the way, I, I 100% agree with you in Wisconsin. I think Johnson's nine lives are over. You know, it is a relatively conservative state where the polling traditionally has been a little bit off. But you know, I think that one is in severe danger of a loss on the Republican side. What do you, what about so um, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania? Yeah. Let's talk about that one. Pennsylvania, Oz, Dr. Oz has got a lot of bad press, but you know, on the other side, the, uh, you know, the candidate there is, has got some health issues. How do you, how do you see that one unfolding? So I, I see Fetterman winning. I think Oz couldn't take a position and kept trying to move to where the noise was, and that instability angered him with uh, Trump supporters, and nobody really trusted him out of the reasonable Republican crowd. And so I I see that as a potential pickup. What about the debate? So what about the debate in what sense? Well, from the standpoint that, you know, one of the, I think one of the concerns that many people have is that Oz is a trained TV personality. Yeah. And, you know, Fetterman's, you know, had a not. stroke. Yeah, he's had a stroke. He's got a speech issue right now. He's not a trained TV personality. So getting on screen with him, you could almost be, you know, Ronald Reagan 2.0. Yeah. So the key to debates is not the debate, but the coverage of the debate, because most people don't watch debates. Even in presidential years, most people don't watch debates because, you know, the only people who really watch him are the super partisans on both sides. Right. So they have something they can talk about to themselves. Right. But the rest of the country will wake up the next day, read the newspaper or whatever. What we should not lose sight of is the value of celebrity, which plays to Herschel Walker, as we just spoke. It is something that Saz got. 
Um, and Ronald Reagan probably brought that into dimension when he ran the first time, like in 76, and certainly Trump did too. There's a power associated with that. The question will be who interprets the debate and whether that moves anybody that's undecided. I think in Pennsylvania, a lot of people have already decided. Ohio. Uh, really tough call. Really tough call. J.D. Vance, again, migrated all the beliefs he held and articulated personally into the camp in order to stay solid with Trump. Yeah, I could almost see an ad that's a weather vane ad. You know, where is he going to go next? And he hasn't sufficiently said, why did you say this here? And why are you saying this now? You know, so originally anti-Trump, non-Trumper, and now a pro-Trumper. And Tim Ryan, interestingly enough, should he be successful in taking that seat, he immediately becomes a presidential candidate. That's fascinating. Likelihood of that happening? I think a race is within a couple points either way. How about Nevada? I think Nevada is stable. You know, I don't see that as one of the swing. And I, I think, you know, I think Kelly's good in Arizona too. Yeah, I don't, I think that's, that's a really tough one for Republicans to unseat him. You know, he's a hero. He's a celebrity in his own right. He's a, he's an astronaut. I mean, people look at that. You know, I've, I've been arguing, you know, since, um, since day one, that character in these elections do matter. Yep. And military people, astronauts, police officers, public servants, they have that, you know, they have that credibility. Celebrity helps too. So he's a celebrity and a perceived man of character. So I think that, I think that one's solid for them. You know, it is a long way away, but 2024 for us political junkies is just right around the corner. And it's always fun to kind of, kind of unpack and talk about, you know, what could be or what should be. We, uh, we did a survey probably six weeks ago and made some news basically pointing out that Democrats did not want Joe Biden to run. 61% of them said they'd rather see someone else run for president. As we stand today, you know, what our polling shows is that in a theoretical matchup between Trump and Biden in 2024, it's a dead heat, you know, within, within the margin of error. It was a dead heat last time. Correct. So nothing's changed in spite of everything that Trump has done and in spite of everything that Biden has done, his perceived ineffectiveness, his uh, low approval rating, it's still a dead heat. Then, you know, one of the things we just did for fun was we threw Liz Cheney into the mix. Before the I concept you, of fun needs some help. Yeah, well, right. Well, we're political junkies. We've got nothing else to do, right? Sure. Before I tell you what it looks like, you throw Liz Cheney into a three-way race with these gentlemen. What would you expect to happen? That she would pull reasonable Republicans who would normally vote for Biden out of the equation. So Trump would stay relatively solid because I can't see anybody that would vote for Liz Cheney coming from Trump, but I can see them coming from Biden. So it probably affects the outcome in the general election in Trump's favor. You're a smart man, John. I was shocked at, at what our polling revealed is that Trump won 45% of the vote Biden with 36 and Cheney with 19. And so she swings the election pretty heavily in his favor. When you look at throwing Cheney into the Republican primary, she gets crushed. I mean, she's a non-issue. She's not even a factor. How do you think about that? So what would be interesting in your next poll would be to ask people, if, if you keep that three-way race, if Liz Cheney was not in the race, for whom would you vote? And see where her vote goes on that. that. That would be interesting to see the movement of that vote. I think Liz Cheney's, if what she said is believed, and I believe her when she said it, that she would do whatever could be done to stop Donald Trump from being president of the United States again, her best play is to go into the Republican Party, get crushed in the nomination, but position the issues in such a way that if there are people who are movable, they realize they need to move because she's only going to do that. And besides that, running in the general election as a third party candidate, 
ballot access is really complex in the United States. And if you doubt me, ask President Perot. <laughs> You're right. Well, he was the last one that uh, got everybody excited about a potential third-party candidate and obviously didn't have an impact. Well, he had an impact in many people's point of view. He put many people believe that Clinton won that because election of that. because of him. Do you right. believe that? Yes. So you believe that Cheney could do the same thing this time around, although it's unlikely in, in the that other she would direction. do so. Correct. Correct. I could even see Trump putting money in her effort to get ballot access in order to get the outcome you described in the polling. In our polling around the Republican primary, Trump crushes everybody. He's got 64% of the vote. DeSantis comes in second with 15%. How do you rationalize that in your mind? Reasonable Republicans change their party affiliation from being Republican to being independent. And so therefore, you know, you have a purist or a trumpet aspect to a Republican Party. that's self-identifiers. Watch the candidates, you know, whether it's Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz or Rick Scott or DeSantis, all try to play to that base because they know they can't get to the nomination without getting that base. And I think that's damaged the Republican Party for general elections. As we get closer to 24, as people start to have to really make decisions about who they're going to, who their candidate is, they're going to support. Do you see this range tightening or do you think it's just Trump's to lose? Well, I don't think it's Trump's to lose, period. I mean, I think Donald Trump on the general election ballot in 2024 guarantees Biden gets reelected because it's people voting against Trump by voting for Biden. It's not people voting against Trump by not voting. And, and so he, do you he think, can do you think Biden's going to be on the on the ballot? Yeah, right now I do. Well, when we look at we look at the polling, 60 percent of Democrats say they don't want him to run. But then when we look at who would be the obvious choices, Kamala Harris, Gavin Newsom, Pete Buttigieg, people aren't really excited about them either. Is there any dark horses out there that people aren't talking about? that you see as a potential and viable candidate. I mean, one of the things that, you know, one of the stories I always love to tell people is talking about when Bill Clinton was running. And uh, I was, you know, I was back in the military and uh, had nothing to do but talk to friends on the phone. And, and one of my buddies called me up and said, you know, hey, uh, I've got some interesting news for you. My brother is working on a campaign and we think he's going to be president. I was like, what campaign? He said, well, it's a uh, governor from Arkansas. His name's Bill Clinton. And my comment to him is no one from Arkansas is ever going to be president. I mean, it's just not big enough. But, you know, again, I was completely wrong. But Bill Clinton kind of came out of nowhere to win that election. Is there anybody out there that you see? Is there an Obama? Is there someone out there who could kind of change the narrative here and get the Democrats excited? So I have, you know, there are probably... Two things I would say, and I'm, I'm going to come back to them, but the data you have, the 60% plus or 61% that don't want Biden to run for re-election, I think that's normal when a president's numbers are in the negative. Should Biden's numbers move from 40% positive or 42% positive to 52% positive, or should he be lucky to get above 55? That whole polling number shifts dramatically. Right now, people don't think he can get reelected. Therefore, they don't want to see him run. But the two stories I would tell you is, hi, my name is Jimmy Carter, and I'm running for president. And that was 1974 to 1976, and a Southern governor out of the state of Georgia won the presidency. And uh, he loses to Ronald Reagan in 1980. Bill Clinton is a first-term governor of the great state of Arkansas, and Clinton and I worked together in the George McGovern campaign. He was state coordinator in Texas. I was state coordinator in Maine. And I go in to see him as a former executive director of the Democratic Party. And I, I said, Governor, there are a lot of people that are looking for a new person to be chairman of the Democratic Party. Somebody who's young, somebody who is articulate, and somebody, you know, who has held statewide office. And I'm here today to see if you want to be the next chairman of the Democratic Party of the United States of America. 
Clinton, who's left-handed, is listening to all this, right? And he's signing letters. And he looks at me, puts down his pen. He goes, Rendon, I got other plans. And I went home to my bride, and I said, I think Clinton's running for president. And she, and she knew him, too. And she goes, president of what? <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> so also a Southern governor. So in answer to your question, uh, after demonstrating I'm still a storyteller, would be take a look at the state of North Carolina. Take a look at the state of Kentucky. I, I think there's something in both those state houses. And even though they don't, they won't mark a poll until they start moving around. But I, I think governors make better candidates than senators because they have to spend all day in a state capitol talking to carbon life forms, people, real people. And when in the United States Senate, you spend all day talking to a camera. Correct. And that's why big state governors have a problem, too. Because big state governors talk to cameras. They don't talk to people. Governor of Kentucky, Governor of North Carolina, Tim Ryan, these gentlemen could move the needle. Yeah, and it's about time the bench thinned out and, and that we got new people on the bench. Uh, if, if the Democratic Party, and I think this may be true in the Republican Party, too, quite candidly. Some Bush 41 people remind me of this the other night. Some of the people in leadership haven't gotten out of the way of younger members in order to enable them to be committee chairs, in order to them to move into leadership positions. That's a real problem because as the nation becomes more technologically literate or genetically reformed, you know, we all use our handheld devices if it's another appendage. You know, we don't have two hands, we have three. Um, you want to punish a child that's no longer, you can't have the car, you take the phone away. So we need to clear the bench and allow new people in. And, and North Carolina, Ohio, Kentucky, you know, are a good start to that. Well, I think Cooper in North Carolina is particularly interesting because that, is, that has been a Republican stronghold for a long time. And being able to win that state office and, you know, hold it, I think shows that shows that this gentleman can negotiate. He can be moderate. He can talk to the people and bring them together. Southern Democrats are moderate. You know, I remember when Jim Hunt was governor, you know, and that admittedly 30 years and change, and, and Dick Riley was the governor in South Carolina. You know, Bob Graham was the governor in Florida. They were all moderates. And a Southern moderate talking to people in the rest of the country can get moderates. And if you put moderates together with progressives, you win a general election for president of the United States of America. Well, my home state, Gavin Newsom, has been rattling a little bit of sabers, look, making it look like he might run. What do you think about that? So I think he is running. And, you know, and he starts with an extra, he starts with several extraordinary adventures. One, he's good on camera. That does matter, even though my earlier comments about you have to be able to talk to people. Talking to people matters in small states because they read bullshit right away. And they call it. The second thing I'd say, he comes with money. California, he can raise money. And so he'll be able to raise the ante almost immediately. And the ante is going to be somewhere between 100 and $150 million as table stakes to get to the game. Not to win it, to get to the game. And then the third thing he comes with is just sheer size. So he'll have probably... I haven't done the math recently, but I'm going to say he'll come to the table with 20% of the delegates. Amazing insights. So, John, leave us with some some wisdom here. If you were going to disappear tomorrow. And return to my home planet. And return to your home planet. What would be three insights you'd like to leave behind? Okay, so one, um, I'm a firm believer in the American people. I've been fortunate enough in my career, if you can call it a career, I'm fortunate enough to have been to every state in the country politically. And I know how honest and decent and reasonable the American people are. And that is not reflected by the people they elect to office. You know, borrowing a line, I forget uh, who it was, but several years ago, somebody said, when traffic in any environment at a traffic circle, roundabout or rotary, depending upon where one spent their formative years, People don't look at bumper stickers to decide whether they're going to let the car in or not. We compromise every single day. 
you know, and so whether it's a right to life or pro-choice, it's the next car and you help your neighbor out. My insight is I think we've lost a sense of community and we need to get that back. And in the community, you can have a conversation, you know, about politics. And right now, people won't even talk about politics at Thanksgiving with family members. And I think that's really tragic. So I think the insight is get back to community and enable those communities to have conversations. So I think we've got to do that. And that'll probably happen on its own anyway, regardless of where political leadership go. Two is, and I saw this, uh, you know, overnight in the news, if we don't pay attention to the environment, environment's going to pay attention to us. And these storms are getting larger, they're getting longer, they're more intense. They're starting in different times of the year. And everybody, you know, is looking for the magic solution. I don't think this is a top-down solution. I think everybody's got a role, and there's a role for everybody to play. I mean, I have a colleague, um, she's got two kids now, they're 18 and 19. I remember when they were six and seven, she's in Columbia, the country. And they would make the people in the movie theater change the thermostat because they thought it was ridiculous that they had to wear a sweater, right? And just change, you know, doing little things at scale could make a real difference. You know, I have friends who tell me they're environmentally sound, you know, and they don't mulch, you know, and they don't recycle. So cut it out, really. I think you'll see big changes. And the third insight I'll give you, which is not a political insight, it's a post-pandemic insight, and it relates to healthcare. So healthcare in the United States in particular, but I would say in the West in general, is built on a foundation of treating illness and injury. It is not built on a foundation of wellness and prevention. And I'm hoping that coming out of this pandemic, and we're starting to come out of it, economic is going to be a few years longer, that we'll see new economic models that move in the direction of wellness and prevention because the total cost to the general public and the cost you know, to individuals will dramatically shift if it's a healthier population. But the revenue models for healthcare have to change from rewarding people that somebody is sick to rewarding people because they've kept them well. And those are my three big insights. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure. May the force be with you always. Thank you. Thank you.